0: Right. we're gonna get started again and uh, those of you who thought you were lucky enough to be rid of me I'm back uh, but I'm not talking this time around I'm just gonna moderate this panel we have some people who are real experts on here who I'm going to uh, turn this over to because I think uh, you'll very much enjoy listening to them the second panel we want to build a little bit on what you just heard we heard a little bit of sort of looking back and some people got to some ideas of how they would make some changes But we want to focus this panel in particular on not just what we've done in terms of welfare reform, but what do we do now? Uh, Welfare reform is 20 years old. Uh, There's entire generations of people in college now who don't remember welfare before welfare reform. And uh, so it's a question now when we talk about how do we deal with the poor, how do we fix things, how do we make things better in the future, that people aren't looking back so much as looking forward. So I'm hoping we have some discussion now about what are the next steps of welfare reform. What does the next version of welfare reform look like? I think it'll look very different than in the past. And our panel that's going to help answer that question, and I'm just going to read everybody off the bios off at the beginning here, and then kind of we'll just move one into the other. That way we can keep it moving swiftly along here. And we start with Donna Pavetti, who is the Vice President for Family Income Support Policy at the Center on budget and policy priorities. You've heard them referred to a lot uh, already today. So they're, they're really uh, a sharp group uh, in terms of this. Uh, I do research, uh, read their research all the time myself. Uh, she oversees the center's work analyzing poverty trends and assessing the nation's income support programs, including TANF. Uh, before joining uh, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, she spent 12 years as a researcher for the Mathematica Policy Research Institute. Uh, which is another very uh, very good group in terms of numbers crunching and uh, and data She's also worked for the urban Institute uh, Department of Health and Human Services on welfare reform issues uh, Been an, uh, an analyst for DC's Commission on social services So she has both uh, sort of the 30,000 foot level and some practical uh, level experience which is very important After that, we'll hear from Michael Strain, who's the director of economic policy studies and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. I stole some of their survey data earlier uh, today. Uh, And he works on labor economics, applied microeconomics, public finance, and social policy. Uh, He's been published in a wide number of peer-reviewed journals and policy journals, uh, and of course, most of the major newspapers. Uh, and has done a great deal of work uh, on welfare reform and poverty issues for AEI. Uh, Rebecca Vallis will follow, and she is the Managing Director for the Poverty uh, to Prosperity Program at American Progress. Uh, Before that, she worked for the National Organization of Social Security Claimants Representatives, uh, or an acronym that I can't even pronounce uh, here, uh, but uh, she worked on disability, uh, which is another issue we've already heard uh, addressed here. Uh, she's uh, very prolific in terms of uh, the TV uh, world and the debates uh, on there. Uh, we don't do screaming uh, here. It's a, it's a very different world uh, on that. Uh, so uh, so we, we're looking forward to her as well. Uh, and finally, uh, Bill Vogley uh, is a senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books and a visiting scholar at Claremont McKenna College's uh, Henry Salvatore Center. Uh, He's the author of two books, Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, and more recently, The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. Uh, He should fit in well here at uh, the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. Uh, And his works appeared in a a wide number of newspapers and uh, peer-reviewed journals across the country. And again, we expect to have a a really lively discussion here. So I'm going to just get out of the way and turn it over to Donna to start us off with.
1: Thank you, Michael. Um, okay, so... Oh, shoot. Sorry. Slides, which... Okay. So... What I want to do is I want to start with um, just a little bit of background for myself because I think it's important to understand where I come from. So I have spent the last – I have been involved with um, looking at welfare reform since it started. So I have been mainly doing work in the field looking at the implementation of welfare reform and particularly TANF um, since it started, and actually I did work before. And um, you heard um, conversations about um, the work that Kathy Eden did on – on how people make ends meet. And I actually was one of the interviewers who did work on that book. So I did work on AFDC, and I really have continued that. And one of my key focuses is really on work and thinking about how do we do a better job of helping people who have trouble entering the labor market do that. And um, so I think that um, welfare reform in this 20th anniversary is a really good time to take a step back. So what I quickly want to do is I think one thing that we really is important is that my experience of being in the field is there are three distinct periods and in, in the 20 years since TANF was, um, was um, implemented. And the reason why that's important is I often think that we have a positive story and that comes from the early years. So in the first four years, 1996 to 2000, we had a booming economy. We saw states really changing and shifting their um, um, welfare offices towards work. Um, we saw Um, work programs being developed that hadn't been before. We had lots of job opportunities for people, including people who had more barriers to employment. But we also saw the beginning of people use of what we call full family sanctions, which is people losing benefits who couldn't comply with work requirements. So the caseload decline that we saw in the early years was not all because people were getting work. Some of that was because people were being cut off who could not comply with those requirements. Then we had the second period, and the second period was really when we had the first recession hit and its aftermath, and what really happened there was we started to see this shift, and we started to see more movement of the money away from TANF's core purposes. And the reason why that happened is because states had so much flexibility. They had budget holes they needed to fill during the recession, and TANF really became a slush fund where they could get those resources, and they took those resources. And so we started to see much more movement away from um, those core purposes. And then what happened then is in 2005, TANF was reauthorized and we had the DRA, the Deficit Reduction Act, which significantly changed. And we had continued decline of work opportunities during that period. We had what really came to be impossible to meet work standards, which I'll talk about in my recommendations. And then we had the re- re- Great Recession hit. We had even bigger budget holes and we had more movement of money out of TANF core purposes. So I think that's important just to sort of think about it. Thank <laughs> you. Very quickly, um, just sort of I think what is also important for me is thinking about what are the facts that I sort of ascribe to that really my recommendations come from. One is one that Heather mentioned in her, which is that TANF serves very few people. It serves 68 at the start. It serves 23 for every 100 in poverty now. And there are 12 states, and that number will almost certainly increase this year, where that number is below 10. And just so you understand what that means, in Louisiana, there are about five families out of every 100 Who receive a cash assistance um, who are in poverty so that number is very very low in some states Um, we also know that benefits have gone down dramatically and we really haven't had um, the benefits haven't increased and in most um, states those benefits are extremely low Um, the thing that I think you've heard this morning is this slide I think is an important slide which really does show the the employment trend and why I think it's important to keep those three um, periods in um, check because what you see is this gap between never married mothers with children and single women with no children under the age of 18, and that gap was closed in 2000. So in 2000, those lines started to move together. So what you have is two groups of women who have similar levels of education who have almost identical employment trajectories. What I take away from this is that there was this movement up. You heard about that, but that we're on a downward trajectory for almost everybody who has a high school diploma or less. And that's a labor market issue that I think we have to start paying attention to. Here, I think, is another thing that is important is that what this slide does is to look at the top line is this number of single mothers who Are not employed so we've seen a lot about people who are employed and saw that go up but you also see the number of single mothers with no employment during the year going up what the bottom line is to show what's happening into TANF so what we have is right now we have 2.4 times as many mothers who are not employed at all during the year that we serve on TANF so we have a group of women of single moms who are not in the labor market and are not getting any help from TANF. And that is something I think we need to be worried about. Here, you've heard before, there's eight cents. Eight cents of every dollar of TANF goes to work programs. So states aren't spending their money to help it. And you look at this, there's a lot of people who could be helped by that but are not. Um, this is that not only does it not go for work, it doesn't go for childcare, and it doesn't go for basic cash. Um, So given that sort of set of facts, what do we need to do to really change TANF so that we can create a better program, really focusing on the facts that we have for today, not on the history, but on today? And I think what we need to be doing is we need to be focusing on two goals. And Ron mentioned this in his presentation this morning, is that we need to be focused on how do we provide an effective safety net and how do we create effective work programs. And that's important for two reasons. One is that we do have families who hit on hard times. And it is their kids who suffer, Heather sort of mentioned this at the end of her presentation, we know a lot about what happens when families' kids grow up in poverty. So if they don't have access to a safety net they end up in a very precarious situation. And they may use some of the strategies that really um, allow them to make um, have more income, but they end up in very unstable situations. So that's one reason why that's important. But the other reason why it's important is that there are not a lot of resources available to help people who need help getting into the labor market. So if they're not getting help from TANF, they're unlikely to be getting help from other places as well. We have a very poorly and declining funding stream that goes towards our workforce programs. So TANF, in many ways, what we've done by not serving families is the two things. We've not provided a safety net, but we've also taken away the opportunity to do what TANF was intended to do, which was to help families get into the labor market. And the other thing that I think is important, and Ron sort of talked about this earlier, is that you cannot make progress on each of those goals unless you really address how TANF funds are spent. So what are the changes that we could actually make that would um, make a difference? First is that states aren't held accountable for um, serving families in need. States could serve, I mean, those numbers, I believe, are going to go down. We're going to see more families who are serving five out of every 100 families. So I think what we need to do is we need to create an accountability measure. We need to hold states accountable for actually providing assistance to people who need it. Um, And you could sort of imagine that could be coming up to the national average over some period of time or setting some um, minimum standard. The other is setting minimum benchmarks for benefit levels and eligibility requirements. One of the things we've seen as states needed the money from TANF is they have made the eligibility requirements tougher. So two examples. One thing that Indiana did is they made it much harder for families to come in the front door. They have a very stringent work requirement, which many people can't meet, um, and so their caseload has plummeted. And Arizona has, over the last several years, gone from a 60-month time limit to a 12-month time limit. And they did that for budget reasons. So right now, people in um, Arizona can only receive assistance for 12 months. So we think we really need to set some minimum um, standards there so that we, again, have a safety net that um, can help families. And finally, we feel like one of the things that is important is creating a recession response fund. We actually had extra money during the Um, recession because of the TANF emergency fund that was created, and states were able to use that in three ways. They were able to deal with providing more cash if people needed it. They were able to provide subsidized jobs. We had 260,000 jobs that were provided for people, and we um, also had, um, it could be used for emergency assistance. So I think, you know, we need to have something that kicks in quickly um, when we hit the next recession. And next really has to do with how do we create effective work programs one is you have to have people on the fir- on the program in the first place to be able to help them Um, So what I think we, um, this is probably the most controversial um, recommendation I have, but um, from being in the field, the one thing that we have to do is we have to replace the TANF work participation rate, which is the um, accountability measure that states are held accountable for with an employment outcome measure. If we don't, we will not see change. What I see in the field is states tying themselves in knots, trying to meet those rates which are meaningless, And I will give you an example of exactly what I mean. That that chart that I showed you of the number of women, single mothers not employed, in Indiana, that went from 59,000 in 95, 96. It is now at 97,000. So it is almost doubled. So we have almost 100,000 single moms in Indiana who are not working, had no work in 2014. On their TANF caseload, they served 10,600 families, 2,200 of them were subject to work requirements. 687 of them actually met the work requirements. And 612 of them were in subsidized employment, so they were already working. So Indiana actually served, of those 100,000 families, single parents who didn't have work, they in their TANF program were able to engage 75 of them. That is not what TANF was about, and it needs to change. Um The other is is that one the next is that what we've seen in our workforce systems is a movement towards much more edu- education and training because of the change in the labor market and TANF really still has stayed in this workforce world and it means that we really are constraining TANF recipients from being able to get the education and skills that will allow them to succeed in the labor market. It also means that states really don't see coordination and collaboration as a real possibility because it's too hard because the TANF constraints um, really um, make that too difficult. And finally, this is um, one of the things that Ron said, is that we really need to encourage states to identify effective strategies for helping individuals with significant employment barriers find and sustain employment. When welfare reform was being debated, there was a lot of concern about the families who were on TANF for long periods of time or receiving welfare for long periods of time. Many of those um, individuals had significant barriers, depression, some substance abuse, histories of domestic violence, kids with special needs. And that is the very group of families that really have been left behind with TANF. If you look at state TANF programs, they are mostly job search programs. And they are job search requirements without a lot of help to help people actually overcome those barriers and to help them make those transitions. And we need to think about what are the pathways that really will work to help that group of families get to work. I think Ron's idea of waivers is a good one um, to start. Um, but we also need to figure out ways to integrate that more Fully into the programs and finally what I want to talk about is just um, well, sorry I was one behind there is um, the funding there as I said to start there is no way you can accomplish these things if you don't change the way states can spend their funding and some of it is taking away some of the flexibility they have so we have two sort of recommendations here one is requiring states to direct more of their TANF funds to TANF score purposes um, so right now Nationwide, it's about half. You will find states that are all over the map. Some are higher, some are lower. Um, and really trying to think about how can you really um, push states in the direction um, so that they are spending more on those core purposes. And the other is we know that the block grant has lost its value. It's about 30% less than it was when it was initiated, is really thinking about how can you begin to add funding and how can you do that targeted to those um, core purposes and not, again, just an increase that allows um, states to spend that anywhere they want. So finally, just what are the lessons we've learned? TANF is not a model for other programs. Um, Work requirements, I think, when we sort of, you know, we have an argument about do we leave people behind or some people worse off? If you look at the um, study that one of the um, previous presenters that was done, one of my colleagues, um, that looks at there's 10%, the bottom 10% of single moms who were worse off than before um, welfare reform. That's 2 million kids. So that's 2 million kids who we are putting in very precarious situations. If you look at the next 2 million above them, they were pretty much even. um, And then there is some increase. So you really do see this difference between some people who were helped and some who were were worse off. And we really need to worry about those kids who are worse off, because they are the ones who have the least likelihood of um, succeeding in the future. The other is, is I think that one thing we have to recognize is that we really put a lot of stock in what states would do, and they really did not live up to the promise. Um, and so there really is a wide um, range of ways in which states have used their funds, and I think we really need to think about um, whether what would happen if you gave states more flexibility with other programs. Would we have worse um, outcomes, or, or would we, where would we end up? And then I think it's really important. TANF was really about work. It was about creating work important opportunities. And states really never took that seriously. In the very early years, they really did shift the message and the culture. They were lucky to have an incredibly robust labor market. But after that, they really have moved away from that. And they're struggling to try and figure out how they can do the right thing. And I think that, that we really need to think about whether or not we know enough and whether or not states are the right ones to really come up with the ideas um, in this flexible world um, to move people to work. With that, I'm gonna stop.
2: Well, thank you for having me. This has been a great morning, I think, uh, on an important topic. It's an honor to be included in such a distinguished company. Um, the subject of this panel is going forward What should welfare look like? I'm going to construe welfare uh, very broadly and argue that we need welfare reform for men. If you look basically at what's happening among men in the workforce, you see that their workforce participation rates have been going down dramatically. Only about four in 10 adult high school dropouts have a job. The labor force participation rate among prime age workers workers who are too old to be in school, too young to be retired, has dropped from over 97% when these statistics began after World War II, today about 88%. That's a tremendous decline in the share of prime-age men who are working. Unemployment among minority youths is shockingly high. It ranges from 25% to 50%, depending on the business cycle. Um, and a lot of that is concentrated among men as well. So there is a problem of men working, particularly low-skilled men, men without a lot of experience. Why is that happening? There are a mix of supply and demand factors. You know, Roughly the left gets this half right, and the right gets this half right. There are serious barriers to work that men face. Women face them too. I'm focusing on men. Uh, there are work disincentives in public programs that are very important and that keep men out of the workforce. Specifically, or particularly, if you look at public programs like Social Security Disability Insurance that have you know, really uh, uh, very large implicit marginal income tax rates, you, see, you get a good sense of the problem. There are also demand factors. Globalization is extremely important at reducing uh, employment among men. When businesses have to compete uh, i 'm sorry when when labor markets are globalized so that businesses can choose to to take advantage of, of of workers in in very different parts of the world, very different labor markets that pushes down wages for low skilled men and that and that in effect pushes many low skilled men out of the workforce, technological change is the most important demand side factor that uh, is affecting male employment. you see um, uh, businesses just not wanting to hire as many people in certain occupations, in certain industries, uh, and those um, uh, employment losses are, are concentrated among lower-skilled workers. If you think about, think about a bank and imagine that the bank has a CEO, a cashier, uh, and a custodian, technology comes along, we don't have cashiers anymore, now we have ATMs, uh, as technology continues to advance, we're going to you know, find a way to, to clean the buildings with, with fewer people, uh, but the CEO actually becomes more valuable. And so it's those lesser-skilled workers that are, that are being replaced. Um, the same thing's happening in factories, for example. Uh, you could argue that manufacturing is now a white-collar profession because you just kind of sit behind a computer and tell the robots what to do, um, as, opposed to, as opposed to the idea that most people have from, from after World War II. And so the labor market is experiencing many changes, um, many changes, and those changes uh, uh, are broad, big, global changes, um, and those changes uh, are are related to policies here at home. What's the most important? Um, If you think about a simple kind of economics one-on-one test, you know, we know that the, the, the number of men who are working has declined. All right. Um, if that was primarily driven by a supply change, by men just not wanting to work, uh, you would expect to see wages increase. If that's primarily driven or in large part driven by a demand change, businesses just not wanting to, to hire as many lesser skilled men, you would expect to see prices to, you prices to decline. Price in the labor market is just a wage and what we've seen are significant declines in uh, inflation-adjusted wages. Um, since 1979, real wages for men uh, with only a high school degree have declined by 20%. Um, one of the things that we learned from Scott Winship's research is that is that statements like the one that I just made are, are more complicated than I think we uh, uh, often, often, often understand. Um, but the general story that... Wages for lesser-skilled men have been falling. Wages for college graduates have been rising, and that that is due, in large part, to the changing nature of what firms are looking for in workers. In addition to being affected by uh, public programs and supply-side issues, uh, I think is I think is correct, and I think it um, points us in the right direction for welfare reform in the 21st century in what I'm focusing on, welfare reform for men. So what should we do? Um, I think we need to remove barriers to employment. We have a, a serious problem, for example, with occupational licensing. Uh, it is uh, uh, the case that in, in many cases, occupational licensing is a good thing. Um, you know, you probably wouldn't want a brain surgeon who didn't have some sort of a license, although... Although I think, you know, uh, there are some libertarians who would argue otherwise. But that's, you know, broadly speaking, a, a consensus view. But as, as uh, Michael mentioned in, in, in the introduction, you know, occupational licensing for hairdressers and, and all these other things are, are clearly nothing more than barriers to entry for incumbent firms uh, that are designed to keep people out and keep people out of jobs. Reform of public programs, Social Security Disability Insurance, um, is uh, an obvious candidate for reform. Uh, There are likely a large number of of people, a large number of men enrolled in that program that could be working, at least to some degree. You know, we think of disability, uh, as we used to in a manufacturing economy, as a binary condition. Right, you're either disabled and you can't work, or you're not disabled and you can. That makes sense in a world where disabilities are caused by factory accidents. You know, if you lose your legs, you can't go back to work in the factory. You're either disabled or you're not. In a services economy, uh, we can we can think much more of disability as, as 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 a continuum. And if there are some jobs or some amount of work that disabled Americans can perform and that they would like to perform, then public programs shouldn't be keeping them out of that, even if it's not full-time 40 hours a week, you know, kind of standing on, on two legs doing physical work. Um, minimum wages, I think, are uh, only going to become a larger problem going forward. As a consequence, both of changes in the labor market that are pushing down wages for lesser skilled uh, uh, Americans, especially lesser skilled men, and as a consequence of the direction that the left has taken with minimum wages. Raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is reckless and irresponsible. Uh, it, it, is, it is an increase that is far outside of uh, what current economic estimates of employment impacts can, can confidently forecast. Uh, and it is a policy that you know, might help the middle class, but. That will leave the most vulnerable members of society to pay the consequence, um, and so removing barriers to implement like these and stopping new barriers from uh, uh, presenting themselves I think is very important in addition to removing barriers, we need to incentivize work um, the uh, the gold the gold standard here seems to me to be the earned income tax credit right now we have an earned income tax credit that offers you know over six thousand dollars for uh, uh, single mothers with three children. You know, again, a lot of this depends on on family size and 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 in uh, what year you're talking about. But you know, say roughly six thousand dollars for single mothers with large families, roughly five hundred dollars for uh, 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 single adults with no children at home, a lot of whom are men. Uh, it is appropriate, I think, that we give more assistance to families with dependent children than not but we could expand the Earned Income Tax tax Credit for childless adults quite a bit while still maintaining a comfortable gap between childless households and households with children. That would, based on past evidence, serve two important purposes. It would pull people into the workforce. We know that previous expansions of the Earned Income Tax Credit have pulled people into the workforce from non-participation into jobs. Uh, there's every reason to believe that would happen if we expanded the childless uh, uh, EITC, um, and of course the Earned Income Tax Credit is uh, an extremely effective anti-poverty tool, lifts millions of people out of poverty every year, including several million children every year, um, and it's very well targeted. Unlike the minimum wage, it goes to low-income households. It doesn't go to to uh, uh, the middle class. We need to build skills. Uh, this, this one is, is much harder to do, I think, from the federal level. Um, but there seem to be some promising work-based learning programs that could be targeted at, um, at uh, uh, lower-income adult, uh, adults, lower-income men, uh, as a way to uh, kind of marry classroom training with um, what businesses in their local community actually want as a way to increase employment and increase wages. The nice thing about these work-based learning programs is that uh, the skills that are taught are determined by local businesses not by bureaucrats and if a business if a business wants a worker to do something they post a vacancy and then the kind of you know the local apprenticeship office or the local work-based learning work-based learning office can help to place somebody in that job but it's the it's the business that's determining what needs to be done in the business it's not a bureaucracy attempting to divine what skills the workforce needs and and, and teach those to people. So I think there's there's a lot of promise there. Uh, And finally, I think um, as part of welfare reform for men, there need to be changes in our culture. And this is the hardest thing for public policy to do. Um, I think many uh, on the right, many libertarians specifically, might even argue that it's an inappropriate thing for public policy to do, and I I have some sympathy for that view. Um, But a culture uh, that supports marriage, that supports family, that supports fatherhood, that supports providing for your kids and being a role model in their lives and meeting your obligations, I think is, is very important. And that's an uncomfortable thing to talk about today Um, but I think it's important I think it is only becoming more important and I think if you're talking about non-employment among men and non participation among men I think it stands to reason that if we had a stronger culture around being a good parent and meeting your obligations uh, to your children that you might see an increase in participation or an increase in employment—at least that's a, that's a conjecture. Um, what can public policy do about that? I think that's a that's a separate that's a separate issue, uh, but certainly cultural leaders and public leaders, I think, I think can do um, uh, can can make some progress in that area. So, I'll close uh, by addressing why this matters. There are economic reasons why we should be concerned about um, low employment among men. Uh, and I think you can justify a lot of policies on purely economic grounds, the growth of the overall economy, the growth rate of, of, of GDP and of income uh, and of living standards is tied very much to, to a growing workforce, the extent to which um, men have been pushing down the workforce participation rate. If you look at the increase in workforce participation in the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, that increase was driven entirely by women entering the workforce, and at the same time as the overall workforce participation was increasing, the workforce participation rate among men had been declining that whole time. Um so you know, we don't have a third gender sitting out there that we can that we can bring into the workforce. That means that the the two genders we have, or maybe you know, maybe we do, I don't know. But um uh you know, there's no there's no equivalent of 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 what we saw in the 70s, eighties, and nineties. Um and uh uh, you know, that means that 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 if we want to have a growing workforce participation rate, we're going to need men to reverse that trend uh, or at least have it level off. Um, I think that provides enough justification for many policies. Um, there are reasons if you're concerned about society, if you're concerned about the health of civil society, uh, if you are concerned about creating a society where individuals enjoy a mutual dependence upon others, and have mutual obligations to others, if you think that's important as a matter of social justice, it's hard to have that kind of a society with men not working, uh, with men not participating in the workforce, uh, especially prime age men. Uh, and this matters on a human level. Uh, as, you know, as we've heard many times, people who aren't working are much more likely to be in prison. People who aren't working uh, are uh, uh, much uh, less likely to meet their obligations to their families. You know, and and more than that, if we care about dignity um, and if we care about people living a full life, uh, you know, for men, a lot of times that means paid employment. That's how a lot of men contribute to society. And true, it's remunerated financially, but that doesn't change the fact that what's happening on a fundamental level are people who are applying their skills and talents to society to contribute. And if you believe as a normative matter that those contributions confer dignity and that those contributions are in some way, in some sense, for most people, necessary for a full life, and if you care about people living full lives and people uh, uh, enjoying that dignity, then taking steps to increase workforce participation among men and taking steps to increase employment among men uh, become of paramount importance. Thank you.
3: Good morning. I think it's it's still morning-ish, right? We're approaching brunch time, if this were a weekend, I suppose, but still good morning. Um, my name is Rebecca Vallis. I'm the Managing Director of the Poverty to Prosperity Program at the Center for American Progress. And I have to say it's been a lot of fun uh, to be listening to this conversation so far this morning because there's actually been a lot of bipartisan, really transpartisan agreement. Um, and I, I'm hoping to continue that as we Uh, continue this morning's thoughts about where we go from here. Um, I find it incredibly useful uh, in having a conversation not just about TANF, but about poverty more broadly, to start with a little bit of a a realistic snapshot of who is poor in America, who are, quote, the poor. The folks in this room are no doubt familiar with the headline stats, nearly 15% of Americans living below what we consider to be poverty in this country using the official measure. One in five children by that measure living in poverty. But less often discussed is how the official poverty measure doesn't capture the much larger share of individuals in this country who are struggling to make ends meet. And that's because that official poverty measure is set at such an austere level only about $24,000 a year for a family of two parents with two children in 2014. Um, And when you look at uh, what experts consider to be the cost of living, what it takes to maintain an adequate but basic standard of living, We're talking about that family of four needing $50,000 at least to meet their basic needs, twice what we're we're currently using as a measure of poverty. And when you use that standard, what you find is that about one in three Americans, 33.4%, are struggling to make ends meet today. And this is consistent with survey data from the Federal Reserve Board. When you ask people, are you getting by? Are you having trouble to make ends meet? One in three Americans are facing that dilemma. I would also add that it is a widely held misconception that poverty is about us and them, a binary, that, quote, the poor are some stagnant class of 47 million Americans who are stuck for life below some arbitrary line. In truth, I'll quote Kathy Eden here, poverty is musical chairs. Half of all Americans will experience at least one year of poverty or of teetering on the edge of poverty at some point during their working years, according to really important and careful research by Mark Rank and his colleagues. And that number rises to four out of five Americans when you count a year of being unemployed or of the head of household being unemployed or of needing to turn to the safety net. And meanwhile, very few Americans live persistently below that federal poverty line. When you look at census data between 2009 and 2011, during the recession, fewer than 4% of Americans were poor all three years in a row. Now, this comes as a shock when you hear these numbers. Until you start to think about what are the most common drivers of poverty in this country and according to HHS the three leading drivers of poverty in the United States are job loss or having your hours cut back or that of your head of household birth of a child and disability or illness life experiences that are incredibly familiar to Americans and probably many of the people in this room. So in short. For most of us, poverty is not a lifelong identity. It's a common lived experience. And so I'll throw out another number, which might sound incredibly high until you think about all the facts that I've just laid out. And that is that fully 70% of Americans will need to turn to the safety net at some point during their lives. And I'm not talking about Social Security. I'm talking about TANF, SNAP, Supplemental security income and unemployment insurance. So, this stark reality makes today's conversation all the more important, and it makes strengthening our safety net including TANF, but not limited to TANF, more important than ever to help individuals and their families uh, hazard the the ups and downs, the vicissitudes, if you will. I've got Carolyn Colvin sitting in the front row here um, of life. Uh, And to get back onto their feet when they fall on hard times. And I do find it critical to start from a place of understanding poverty in America before we go to policy. We're not talking about a class of broken people. We're talking about a broken economy. Now, as Donna pointed out, while TANF was initially hailed by many as a success in the early years, the booming full employment economy of the 1990s, the late 1990s, too often the narrative stops there. And that's why I'm so glad that we're having this conversation this morning, because 20 years on, the evidence is clear that TANF represents a cautionary tale, not a model for other programs. You heard from Donna how it reaches precious few families in need, fewer than one in four poor families with kids helped today down from two thirds in 1996. Compare that to SNAP, the food stamp program, which reaches about 80% of eligible families in their time of need. The program is woefully unresponsive to recessions. It barely budged in the recent Great Recession and even declined in some states. Again, compare, snap, which expanded dramatically to meet the dramatic rise in need. Lack of accountability for results is a concern across the aisle. Um, Helping participants get into jobs isn't even a measured outcome today, nor is poverty reduction, despite what this program is purportedly about. Um, And uh, as you heard at length again from Donna, also no accountability on where the money goes. Again, compared, 95% of SNAP funds go to help uh, help families purchase food. Um, I'll also note that it does a very poor job serving married and cohabiting families and that is especially concerning if you are someone who views one of TANF's four uh, purposes, um, encouraging the formation and maintenance of two-parent families as something that you want this program to achieve. The program generally doesn't serve two-parent families. Just 1.3% of two-parent married households with children receive help from TANF today. Um, It's incredibly ineffective at cutting poverty and hardship. In addition to reaching a very small and even declining fraction of struggling families with kids, benefits are so meager that even the lucky few who receive TANF are still unable, by and large, to meet their basic needs. And that's because in no state does TANF provide benefits of even half the federal poverty line. We're talking about about $10,000 a year for a family of three. Even counting SNAP. Income from TANF plus SNAP isn't enough to bring a family of three to the federal poverty line in any state, and it's also not going to be enough to help you afford rent in any state. So in light of this, proposals to model other programs after TANF, something that we hear a lot about these days, whether it be housing assistance, nutrition assistance, health insurance, um, would be nothing short of a blueprint for exacerbating poverty and inequality in this country. And one additional. A quick note um, on work requirements. Continued calls for extending work requirements to other programs as somehow a panacea um, are not only unsupported by the evidence of what these types of policies achieve, but they're also premised on a fundamental misunderstanding of what the individuals and families who find themselves needing to turn to public assistance are experiencing, what their lives look like. More than 90% of households who receive public assistance in this country are elderly, disabled, or working households who aren't kept out of poverty by the too low minimum wage. And that's one area where we're going to have a friendly disagreement. Um, One other key limitation not specific to TANF that I think is important to mention is the inclusion of counterproductive penalties that prevent families from having even modest precautionary savings, um, often referred to as asset limits. Not only does this policy keep families from building the savings that they need to get ahead, making it more likely that they'll need to either remain on assistance for longer or return to it in the future in the event of a future economic shock, But this policy is also, the evidence shows, incredibly wasteful from an administrative perspective. And given recent research uh, finding that nearly half of Americans don't have even $400 in savings, this means states are wasting taxpayer dollars, effectively hunting for a needle in a haystack. So I wanted to make one quick um, uh, set of remarks uh, with respect to Social Security Disability Insurance, because that's come up a lot today, before I turn to where I think we go from here. Um, And uh, I'll let Commissioner Colvin correct me, um, or jump in, if there's anything I get wrong or or leave out. Um, But there's often a lot of discussion about um, perceived declines in the labor force participation rate. And I don't mean to say that the declines are not real. They are real, but the perception that somehow how everyone is going on, quote, disability. And for anyone in this room who thinks that it's easy to qualify for Social Security disability benefits, I would urge you to speak to someone who has tried to access the benefits that they've earned or someone who has handled or still handles those cases. That was what I did as a legal aid lawyer for years before I entered the public policy world. Um, so just. Sit with me quickly as I explain what it means to be disabled for purposes of Social Security benefits. You have to have a physical or mental impairment that is expected to last at least 12 months or to result in your death. And you have to have that impairment in such a way that you can document that you can't do any job that exists in the entire, excuse me, the entire national economy in significant numbers at a level where you could earn even $1,090 per month. That is what we are talking about. And the vast majority of people who apply for these benefits, despite the fact that they earn them, do not qualify and do not receive assistance. And thousands of people each year die waiting for those benefits because it is so hard to document that disability. That's something to keep in mind as we think about this perception that people are all moving on to this other desirable program. I would also urge you to look at research from the White House Council of Economic Advisers examining that very question of whether declines in the labor force participation rate, particularly among men, are attributable to DI. And they found the answer is, There is virtually no relationship. Um, So I would urge you to look at that. And I'm also happy to talk to anyone who wants to hear more about what it takes to qualify for this program. So where do we go from here? I think the TANF 20th anniversary offers an incredible opportunity to reflect on where we go from here not just when it comes to income assistance for kids and for families um, and strengthening TANF should without question be a priority moving forward but I think it's also an opportunity uh, to keep TANF in perspective as one part of a larger poverty, um, anti-poverty policy agenda um, uh, that we could be embarking upon in this country. And I think that that's particularly important um, given economic instability now being such a widespread experience due to decades of flat and declining wages and the gains from economic growth increasingly concentrated in the hands of a few at the very top. Other key priorities that we need to be thinking about, in addition to the TANF-strengthening agenda that that Donna laid out this morning and that I would echo wholeheartedly, must include job creation and wages. If we're having a conversation about how we want to move people, quote-unquote, from welfare to work, we would be missing a huge piece of the puzzle if we didn't think about jobs and wages, and particularly for folks who have been left out of the labor market. So we've heard um, over and over again about 68 straight months of job growth since October 2010, something to celebrate indeed with the recession in our rearview mirror. Um, but certain groups of workers continue to face elevated rates of unemployment and underemployment, particularly workers of color, opportunity youth, youth who are not in school and, and not working between the ages of 16 and 24, people with criminal records, um, people with disabilities. Investments in infrastructure and research would yield dividends uh, when it comes to creating jobs and pushing the economy to full employment, but we also need to focus on pathways to good jobs for those who have been left behind, Um, and I would hope that we would be thinking about apprenticeships, about national service, but also about subsidized employment. As we learn lessons from TANF, one lesson that we should learn is from the tremendous success of the TANF Emergency Fund at the height of the Great Recession, which put 260,000 Americans back to work work and help them get something on their resume in hopes that they could actually move forward um, in the labor market. Raising wages, this is not going to be an area necessarily of bipartisan agreement. But I think we can all agree as to the facts, which is that our federal minimum wage has become a poverty wage, because it has been stuck at an anemic $7.25 for over six years. And when you think about what it takes for a minimum wage worker to earn the same in real terms today, as he or she did in 2009, they now need to work an additional 244 hours to have those same real earnings. That's what we're talking about when we talk about um, the loss in purchasing power. Raising the federal minimum wage to $12 would not only lift 4.5 million Americans out of poverty, it would also yield substantial savings in public assistance programs, such as the food stamp program. Uh, we would see $53 billion in savings from SNAP over 10 years if we were to raise the minimum wage in that way. Um, and I would, I would just add that it's great to see bipartisan momentum growing for expanding the EITC for workers not caring for children in their homes. Um, uh, but evidence does make clear that this policy needs to go hand in hand with raising the minimum wage. We need work family policies so that uh, working parents aren't needing to be making choices between work and caregiving. And that includes paid family and medical leave, particularly thinking about the birth of a child being a driver of poverty, a leading driver of poverty in this country. I would also add that the right to request flexible and predictable schedules is critical. Um, Work by uh, Kathy Eden and Luke Schaefer takes a look at really how the ragged edges of the job market are one of the reasons that people need to turn to public assistance, and particularly TANF. Um, And that's something that I think we need to keep in mind. and I think we should also um, think seriously, particularly looking ahead to a new Congress and a new administration, about opportunities to harness the child tax credit as a tool for investing in the next generation. We need to strengthen TANF, but we should also be looking at other complementary policies that can help increase income, particularly for children in the first few years of life. And this is something that both the Center on Budget and CAP and another a number of groups have been looking at um, uh, as a real opportunity. Um, And then I wanted to echo what Michael said about um, investing, uh, excuse me, removing barriers to opportunity. Um, And uh, among many of the barriers that he mentioned, um, and occupational licensing is is critical, um, I think we need to also think incredibly broadly about the relationship between the criminal justice system and poverty in this country. Um, uh, Research has shown that if not for the trends that we've seen in mass incarceration between 1980 and 2004, our nation's poverty rate would have dropped. By a fifth. You cannot ignore the intersection between the two. And on the flip, on the the back end of that puzzle, what we have now is one in three Americans have some type of criminal record. And Work by CAP has shown that not only does this impact families, but to the tune of nearly half of American children now have at least one parent. With a criminal record and because of the barriers to housing to employment to education and more those children find their life chances severely limited we cannot ignore um, the, the need to ensure second-chance policies particularly for children and then finally I would I would echo Donna's message that we need to be careful as we think about the lessons learned from TANF uh, in extending um, any thoughts that this program might serve as a model for other effective programs, whether SNAP or housing assistance in the middle of a national affordable housing crisis or health insurance. Um, We may have real opportunities in a new administration to think creatively and and even bipartisanly and transpartisanly about how we expand the EITC, the child tax credit and other key programs, but it would be a huge mistake to, with the other hand, weaken um, what's left of the safety net uh, for families who are struggling to get by. Thank Thank you.
4: Thank you. Good morning. Thank you ladies and gentlemen. Thank you preceding and concurrent panelists. Thank you to the Cato Institute for having me here. An invitation that was borderline mystifying because I have no uh, policy expertise in general to offer and certainly none that uh, would uh, account for a uh, a marginal improvement on what you've already heard today. So I'm going to speak at a much much higher level of generality about political um, purposes and premises that, uh, that shape the debate over uh, welfare. Not quite two years after the law we're discussing today was enacted, the New York Times ran a front page story denouncing the state of Idaho for having reduced its welfare rolls by 77% over the preceding three and a half years. According to one academic expert quoted in the article, Idaho Idaho has effectively made itself the worst place in the nation to be poor. Uh, That is and was a contestable assertion, but also a clarifying formulation. The clear implication is that the goal of welfare policy is to make a state the best place in the nation to be poor, and a nation the best place in the world to be poor. The Times argued that the hallmark of a jurisdiction where it's bad to be poor is that government strictly limits the amount spent on welfare programs and the number of people enrolled in them. It follows that increasing welfare spending and enrollment is the key to making a place good for the poor. It's possible, however, to stipulate the overriding goal of helping the poor, but then also arrive at a different conclusion about that imperative's meaning. An alternate account would hold that the best place in the nation to be poor is the one where you're most likely to be poor briefly, as opposed to securely and respectably. Two attributes that would make it easy to get out of poverty and hard to fall into it are, one, a dynamic economy with numerous opportunities to begin and switch careers or start and expand enterprises, and two powerful social norms that offer the poor sympathy and encouragement qualified by the tough love that reproaches people for choices, habits, or dispositions that increase the likelihood they or their children will become poor and reduce the likelihood they or their children will escape poverty. In theory, these two approaches to optimizing the poor's circumstances and prospects seem mutually exclusive. In practice, America has tried to synthesize them. Much of this ambiguity reflects the nature of the American experiment— which values both inclusiveness and individualism. E pluribus unum, and don't tread on me. But a good part of it, I think, also reflects the character of Franklin Roosevelt, the American most responsible for launching and shaping our welfare state. Like Bill Clinton, FDR rejected false dichotomies so emphatically as to call into question whether he acknowledged the existence of true dichotomies. During the 1932 election, his advisors presented him with two drafts of a campaign statement, one advocating lower tariffs and the other calling for higher tariffs. Roosevelt's response was to turn to the speechwriters and say, weave them together, boys. So, on the one hand, uh, President Roosevelt could declare in his 1935 State of the Union Address that continued dependence on relief induces a spiritual and moral disintegration fundamentally destructive to the national fiber. He went on to call welfare a narcotic and subtle destroyer of the human spirit. Hello? On the other he could introduce the second Bill of Rights in his 1944 State of the Union Address. The eight entitlements it endorses can be divided in half. The first four concern individual's efforts to fend for themselves, while the second are prerequisites for a decent life whose possession, in FDR's telling, has no obvious relation to individual's productive activities. You're on your own, that is, when it comes to food, clothing, recreation, and feeling useful. You are not on your own with respect to housing, medicine, economic security, and education. A functionally and morally adequate safety net will guarantee these necessities to all, whether or not it appears they are willing or able to fend for themselves. There isn't much point, after all, in declaring a right to welfare benefits unless you also insist that the needs of some give them a decisive claim on the wealth of others. The welfare state we've built to pursue these objectives now accounts for nearly three-fourths of federal government outlays. The Office of Management and Budget's Human Resources Superfunction comprises these six functions meant to achieve the goals FDR laid out. I include in today's discussion programs often and accurately described as middle class entitlements, such as Social Security and Medicare, because assisting those who are not poor is a feature of America's welfare state, not a bug as the principal architect of our social insurance system, Wilbur Cohn, famously said, a program that deals only with the poor will end up being a poor program. In his view, the political viability of welfare programs, of the the whole panoply of the welfare state, required dispersing benefits throughout society rather than concentrating them on the poor. The political logic is to blacken the sky with crisscrossing dollars, rendering plausible that which is mathematically impossible, that an enormous but still finite amount of wealth can be taxed and transferred in such a way that nearly every household winds up as a net importer rather than a a net exporter of governmentally redistributed income. 2014, the federal government spent $7,933 per American on human resources programs. Adjusted for inflation and population growth, that figure was twice as high as federal spending for those purposes in 1989, three times as high as in 1974, nearly four times as high as in 1971, and five times as high as in 1968. In our federal system, state and local governments also pursued the objectives laid out in the second Bill of Rights. Assuming these Census Bureau numbers were at least as high in 2014 as in 2013, government at all levels spent about $10,500 per American on welfare state programs broadly defined, roughly $42,000 for a family of four. Uh, This calculation excludes, by the way, state and local government outlays on education, which amounted to $877 billion in 2013. In addition to money the government spends to promote the goals defined in the second Bill of Rights, It also fashions tax incentives that subsidize private spending for such purposes. Federal tax exemptions, for example, promote medical insurance and care, home ownership, and economic security, costing the federal government nearly a half a trillion dollars in foregone tax revenue. Furthermore, a significant though harder to quantify part of the welfare state consists of government enactments that do not entail public spending or tax subsidies, but the use of carrots and sticks to get some some citizens to assist others. Examples would include the Americans with Disabilities Act, minimum wage laws, rent control laws, and regulations requiring real estate developers to incorporate low-income housing into new apartments, and subdivisions. In the 72 years since President Roosevelt proclaimed the second Bill of Rights then, efforts to realize its goals have grown dramatically. Over the past half century, they have become American government's central concern, To recapitulate something Michael said earlier, we are left with the most interesting, boring graph in American politics, which argues that all these outlays, incentives, and regulations have done very little to reduce poverty, presumably the purpose of the whole endeavor. For the past 45 years, the proportion of Americans who are poor, or nearly poor, has fluctuated in a narrow band. From one-sixth of the national population when the economy is strong to one-fifth when it's weak. It's hard to see how it would be less effectual (coughs) to (coughs) to take the trillions of dollars now directed through a bewildering array of government endeavors and simply distribute the money randomly by taking sacks of $20 bills up in helicopters for example. Wasting money is bad, but for an exceptionally affluent nation, probably not fatal. Our welfare state has grown faster than our economy, but both have increased a great deal. My own back-of-the-envelope calculation is that the trends since World War II would have to continue for the rest of the 21st century before America's welfare state becomes Scandinavian in size and scope. That eventuality may never occur and may not be all that dire if it does. I personally would rather live in America than Denmark, but I'd also rather live in Denmark than most places in the world today or in most times and places uh, in the past. Our welfare state also weights assets that may not be so ample, however, One is the lives of people who could make valuable economic, political, and social contributions if we did a better job of lifting people out of poverty and preventing them from falling into it. Another is the confidence Americans feel about our republic's governmental competence and integrity, like the wars in Vietnam or Iraq, wars on poverty that devote ever-increasing resources to ever-receding goals. Engender corrosive cynicism. At the risk of being rude to my Cato Institute hosts, I would describe myself as a conservative who is no more than an equivocal libertarian. Uh, I do not, for example, consider it self evident that the welfare state that welfares least, welfares best. The creative destruction of capitalism is particularly creative for some and particularly destructive for others. A problem that cannot be ignored if self-government is to be sustained and vindicated. But it's not enough for the welfare state to mean well, for its heart to be in the right place. And it's not enough for it to do things. The point is to accomplish things. The contrast between large, growing efforts to end poverty and negligible reductions of poverty does argue that a welfare state divided against itself cannot stand. I believe that much of the American welfare state's operational chaos results from its theoretical incoherence. Rather than choose between individuals' fundamental responsibility for their own lives and government's fundamental responsibility to prevent bad things from happening to them, we've treated the two propositions as ingredients in a mixture, not alternatives. The results, predictably, have been a mess. FDR, to the contrary, it appears there are some things we cannot weave
0: together. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take some questions from the audience in just a minute. Uh, Once again, if you'd wait till the microphone comes down, we have them now. So if we could wait till the microphones come down and take them. I'm going to start off though with uh, take the moderator's privilege here and ask the, the sort of first question or two here. And one of them goes back to a question I asked at the very beginning during my remarks. And that is sort of what is the goal in terms of welfare reform and in terms of poverty programs generally? Is our goal? simply to reduce the deprivation of which people in poverty are suffering, so that their suffering is alleviated to some degree? Is it to somehow enable them to get out of poverty, or is it some combination of them? And I know everyone's going to say, well, it's both. So let me ask you to weight them to some degree. Where should the emphasis be? And why don't we just go down the line and start with Donna.
1: So I do think it has to be both, um, and I, um, I'm not sure that I can wait them. I think what I would say is that I think where we fall short is we do not know how to make big gains in moving people out of poverty and really changing their life trajectory. And I think some of that goes back to when you talked this morning about we focus our programs on changing individual behavior much more than we focus on changing the structural issues that lead people down the path that they take. So when you sort of make the distinction between personal choices and structural choices, I don't think that when somebody – makes the choice, or we think of making a choice to not complete high school, that that's a fair choice when they have not been given opportunities. So I think we have to think about um, the structural issues and what we have to do to fix them. And until we know that we can move, help people to move um, substantially forward, um, then I think we have to be able to provide a minimum level that allows people to buy food, housing, and to meet their basic needs.
2: <laughs> um i uh i i i i mean i i i think it's a hard question um i think i think i think it helps to uh to you know postulate some normative statements and see if and see if people agree with them because ultimately can you not hear me um is this on yep excellent um because ultimately you know we are we are a, a democracy and 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 you know we can decide um on these issues and, and, and should be debating them. I think uh, we should have as a as a basic standard that no one who works full time and heads a household should live in poverty. And I think that that's something that. You know, I personally believe it's something I would hope we would be able to all agree on. Uh, And that means that if a person can only get a job for seven dollars an hour or eight dollars an hour um, and the person has some kids at home uh, that um, uh, the rest of society pitch in to make sure that that person and those children don't live in poverty, that person is doing the right thing in a normative sense. Um, and society should reward that. Uh, so that's one normative statement. Another normative statement that I would support is that in a nation as wealthy as ours, uh, there shouldn't be uh, uh, extreme poverty. Um, you know, no matter no matter how badly you screw up, you shouldn't starve to death. No matter how bad your choices are, your children shouldn't starve to death. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, perhaps is, is a... Is a uh, you know, more contentious statement, but that's a statement I think that uh, should at least be debated and certainly one, one that I agree on. Um, and so kind of tackling the problem like that, I think, to decide what kind of a safety net we want uh, is, I think, a useful way to, to go about answering the question.
3: Thank you. So, um, I I think that there are a few ways that you can think about this. Um, there are how we there's how we feel morally. There's how we feel economically. Um, if you care, as I, I think Michael just articulated about um, the the basic principle that. No one in this country should, and I would I would go farther than you know even one who is earning seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour working full time. But if you believe that no one in this country should be poor, that no one's child who who was born um, into an unlucky situation should be homeless, um, you have a moral case for why we should offer protection. But there's also an economic case when you look at the cost of child poverty in this country. It's six hundred and seventy two billion dollars per year in lost GDP. So even if you aren't persuaded by the moral case, there's a very strong economic case for providing something that is a much more basic safety net than we currently have through TANF. Um, I would also add that in addition to um, the argument that uh, we need something that can protect all of us from a situation that might befall almost anyone. And that four out of five number, I think, hammers that home. Um, it, there, It's not just about mitigation of deprivation. There is a burgeoning body of research making very clear that uh, we're also talking about programs that boost economic mobility in the long term for the children who benefit. Um, you can look at the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, food stamps, TANF, um, even very small amounts of money uh, in the hands of poor families during the first few years of life in particular can translate into dividends when it comes to improved health, improved uh, educational outcomes, and then increased employment and and earnings um, in adulthood for those children. So I think we have a lot of arguments um, that we can look to um, for uh, how we want to structure this program. I I would also just add, though, and I I hope that the the Q&A takes us there a little bit, A program that I neglected to mention earlier and which really needs to be discussed, I think, hand-in-hand with the TANF conversation is unemployment insurance. Um, We don't like to think about the next recession being on the way. Um, Statistically, it is likely that we are going to see a a new recession um, not that far off. I apologize for being the bearer of doom and gloom. Um, And we're not prepared for it. Um, And so when you actually look at uh, who unemployment insurance reaches in their time of joblessness, we're now at an historic low of just one in four jobless workers protected by UI when they hit that time of need. Um, And that needs to be a hand-in-hand conversation with TANF, because if we're talking about programs that protect people from joblessness and programs that then can help people get back on their feet and back into the labor market, we need to not leave out UI. Bill?
4: Um, I would uh, put my meager recommendations in the context of the overriding purpose of uh, sustaining the American experiment in self-government, which I consider to be permanently precarious. Um, so I would say that whatever policy ideas we we ponder um, must be considered alongside the perspective for collateral, political, and social damage that comes from uh Quietly, implicitly broadcasting the notion that uh, if you've got a problem, we, the government, have a program that um, rights, um, unlike uh, what uh, Jefferson and the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence said, are based in nature. The rights mean what we say they mean, and and you can there can be rights to anything we think you really ought to have. Um, so I would say that given and in line with my more or less prepared remarks uh given the um the abundance of our efforts our policy efforts already in the direction of um uh, mitigating poverty uh and preventing people from falling into bad uh, uh circumstances that our focus should be not on um innovations or augmentations, but on simplifying and streamlining and consolidating, doing fewer things, doing those few things better than we currently are. And my final thought would be that I believe the, uh, once the the, uh, government addresses its role or responsibility in mitigating poverty, um, that the challenge of helping people out of poverty of, of giving them the resources, uh, practical and moral, to uh, uh, fashion good and admirable lives for themselves is largely a social rather than a governmental and political function. So I believe the most acute need there is not anything that uh, any candidate can offer, but something that will work from the bottom up rather than the top down in America, by voluntary groups, by churches, by um, by people concerned about neighbors and uh, co-worshippers and uh, who will um, uh, reinvigorate the um, uh, Social capital uh, required to uh, help people along when they hit a tough patch.
0: Let me let me just ask about one issue that's actually being debated in a lot of states right now. It seems there's a big debate right now, on sort of among some state legislators, with the idea that we'll keep the social safety net sort of intact, but we'll make life as miserable as possible for the people who utilize it. Mm-hmm. So we see states saying you can't use food stamps to buy seafood. Mm-hmm. Or you can only take $25 a day out of an ATM if you're on TANF. Mm-hmm. Or you have to spend money here. and We sort of treat poor people as if they're three-year-olds uh, getting their allowance. Now, to some extent, I mean, I also think there's an extent that's on the right. I think on the left, there's also a little bit of the idea that we can't expect anybody who's poor to take responsibility in any way in their life. So again, so we have to give them their housing benefits. We have to give them their health care. We can't give them cash because they might misuse it. To what extent do you find that in the debate today? And do you find, you know, should we be taking, I mean, I, and I see arguments being the poor need more moral guides, more direction in their behavior, making the correct decisions, or should we be giving people more responsibility and saying, it's your life, you, you, get, you know, we're going to help you, but you're going to get to run it. Anybody want to weigh in? Jump in on that?
3: I'll take a crack. I mean, I, I think it doesn't stop there either, right? There have been proposals, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a, a town in Maine, um, to create so-called welfare databases so that we can track people, complete with their names and their addresses. Who are these welfare recipients? Um, thankfully, that hasn't gone into effect because it would also be illegal. Um, but I think what we're seeing in this sort of era of um, a really incredibly aggressive bureaucratic disentitlement, because that's what it is, um is not just something that is in conflict with, um, I would argue both libertarian and I would say conservative values. Um, uh, and I, I, would take issue with your, um, characterization, I think front in a friendly manner, sure. um, that, that, that folks on the left also don't, well, I'll, I'll, I'll return it in kind. Um, th- that there's a sense on the left that people can't be trusted with their money. I think there has been a sense that something proposals and policies can gain, um, Political popularity and actually be feasible to move forward if they are in kind as opposed to cash. And so I think that's why we've seen that tendency. But I think that the broader, um, uh, both cause and consequence of this movement in this direction, has been to further otherize. People who experience hard times. And I think that not only does that make it harder for us to build political and public will to uh, ensure a robust safety net that's in everyone's self-interest as well as broader economic interest, but it really it labors under misapprehensions about who is it that struggles to make ends meet. Um, and I think that's that's a lot of where the conversation needs to head. The reality of the face of poverty in this country, as opposed to, um, and apologies to anyone I offend, the Fox News conception of the poor person eating bonbons on the couch.
1: So can I just sort of add, I think that the other piece of this that I'm always struck by is how little emphasis we place on the labor market and what that means for people in terms of their own choices. Because a lot of sort of the constraints and sort of the you know tough love sort of um, policies assume that everybody could go out and get a job tomorrow or they could get help from a church or whatever. And that in my 20 years plus of doing this is not the reality that I think people face. I think the reality that people face is that if you have one little blemish um, on your record for whether it's criminal or whether you have mental health issues or whether you have a disability, all of those things really lock you out from the labor market. And just Just to give you some statistics, there's a program in New York City that um, was actually rigorously evaluated that tried to take people with the most significant barriers who were on TANF and really provide them with a comprehensive set of services to help them move into the labor market. And they had statistically significant impacts. And what they did was they moved the percentage of people who were able to find employment from 27% to about to about a third, so 33%. That means two-thirds never were able to find employment. And the labor market has a role to play with that. So until we really can struggle with how do we, you know, licensing is one, but I think there are many more things that go into employment decisions that we don't take into account. And we really assume that people have much more control over their ability to earn their own income than they do.
0: Well, I'm going to say that you know, Cato has long worked on both, both the occupational licensing and the criminal justice reform aspects of this, uh, in, in terms of the labor market. But I'd also wonder, you know, to what degree can you have a functioning labor market when you put more regulations? You know, going kind to of have a $15 minimum an hour, dollar an hour, and you have to provide fa- paid family leave, and you have to provide health care, and you have to provide certain limited vacation, and you have to provide sick to... At what point does that say there is no more labor market for people with minimal skills because they simply cannot provide the productivity to offset all of those costs? And, and then you know, so it, there seems to be some sort of contradiction sometimes in the, in those policies. Do you have something, Mike? I... Uh,
2: sure. I mean, I I agree I agree with that. I agree with the thrust of what of what uh, Donna said as well, um, which I think only highlights. The need for public policy to make it easier for people to get jobs, uh, to reduce barriers to employment, you know, similar to what to what you just laid out, um, especially if we have an expectation that, that, that people, you know, are in some sense choosing between working and not working. We need to We need to create uh, an economy that that is able to absorb those workers. Um, I mean, I think, you know, in answer to your question, we should never dehumanize a class of, of people. Um, and we certainly shouldn't uh, dehumanize the poor and, you know, think of them as caricatures that are, that are inaccurate. Uh, to, my, to my friends on the left, I would say that that applies equally to the rich as well. You know, you know dehumanizing the top 1% and treating them as, a, as an income generating mechanism for all of our, uh, you know, preferred social policies is, is, is also, I think, um, very distasteful. Uh, you know, but at the same time, it is the case that the money that um, uh, is spent on low-income programs, it doesn't come from the money tree. It comes from people who, who earn that money. Um, and the people who earn that money do have some right to exercise some paternalism. Now, obviously, you know, stopping people from buying seafood or, or whatever you know, is, you know, at least on face value, pretty silly. Um, but saying, you, know, you can't use this money on alcohol... You know, you have to use this money on on you know you know maybe maybe we don't want you using this money on Coca Cola or, or whatever you know putting some you know or or at a minimum you need to use this money on food. Let's just say uh, I think I think that's actually pretty reasonable. Um, and part of the reason why I think welfare reform worked is because it combined you know paternalism and a little bit of hassle with. Um, uh, help and assistance and rewards. And thinking about, you know, going forward, I think it's appropriate to to try and, you know, create a, a, a balance there.
0: All right, let's go out to the audience right I, now. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Bill. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I just it's wanted chim- to
4: uh, ch- yep. chime, chime in on this. Um, if we're, if if the question is um, a concern about uh, barriers to sort of re-entry into the productive America uh, and that under the, the current regime, the, the now 20-year-old regime, this is too difficult. There are too few opportunities. The, the walls are too high. Um, I, I sort of go back to the, the framework about the entirety of what we're doing um, to promote welfare and about the premises of whether welfare is or is not a right. So I guess my question would be, to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, to the Center for American Progress, if your organizations were given czar-like powers over American policy, which is a rough approximation of where we'll be in January. Um, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Would you, in, in a blank sheet of paper world, um, get rid of TAMF and reintroduce AFDC and this time do it right and generously with not simply the, the guarantee uh, w- with uh, welfare as an entitlement, but as a, a much higher floor to guarantee that no one uh, who's on AFDC has anything other than a, you know, sort of not so nice, but, but reasonably comfortable
3: life. I think even in that world, we still have a divided Congress, right? So we no, get this is, this is oh, the, we, the thought
4: experiment is you're running the show.
0: OK, that's interesting. All right, I am going to go to the, uh, the audience right now, and I'll start. We'll never know. We'll never know. I'm going to keep that one a secret. We'll get a chance to, to weigh in on that, though, when we get to the questions like that I am going to start with right here. Commissioner?
1: I wanted to pick up uh, on the uh, conversation you were having about what you need. Uh, having uh, been responsible for welfare reform at the state level, What I found was it's not just a job. It's all of the things around the job. It's the flexible work hours or the flexibility when you have child care issues or you have school issues that you have to deal with. It's the lack of coordinated transportation in many of our communities where the welfare mom cannot afford a vehicle. So it's all of those kinds of things. I have found that poor parents are not much different than us middle-class parents. We want the best for our children, uh, but there are a lot of complications that they have with a lack of support systems that we do not provide, uh, that many of the middle class have. So I think we have okay. to look at all of these. i to have to move to a
0: question mark on all these all. I'm going to be that kind of ruthless on all of these. Anybody respond to that or agree, disagree?
1: No, I disagree? I mean, I agree. I think it is. And it's why when we think about core purposes, we include child care and sort of work supports as part of that, because I don't think it's just. Preparing for work people for work, but it's also really helping them to be successful at work. And I think everything you mentioned is part of that.
3: I, I would ag- I would agree and I want to make just one other quick, very, very quick point, which is that I, I think um, it often gets articulated as though paid leave is something nice to have. Um, or or even permission to have a sick day, that that's something that would just, it's nice to have, it's a cushy benefit. The reality is your job is on the line if you miss a a day of work, if you call in sick, if your kid is sick and you have to go pick them up. And so that's what we mean when we say making choices between work and caregiving. It's not just about do I go to work today like it is for most people in this room. Oh, maybe I'll work from home, maybe I'll take a sick day. It's you will lose your job. That is what is on the line if you take care of your family and if you take care of yourself, and that's important to keep in mind. But
0: it is a cost imposed on employers. I'm
3: not saying it's not, yeah. but as we weigh what that cost is worth. Great, agreed. agreed. Peter?
1: I wanted to ask, um, what ideas does anyone on the
3: panel have on what policies we could adopt to uh, address poverty that would address poverty by increasing economic growth and wage growth and job creation? So uh, we actually, uh, if you look at the data, We actually never recovered to normal levels of economic growth since the last recession. We've not recovered to normal levels of of wage growth, job creation. So uh, isn't the best way to address policy to get the economy growing again and to get jobs, uh, wages rising again? And what ideas does anybody have about uh, policies that could be adopted that could promote that?
0: uh, Why don't we just quickly run down the, uh, Mm -hmm. no, anybody? I, I would suggest that what we really need is a significant reduction in the burden of taxes and regulation on business in America. That I think is slowing economic growth. Uh, but I also think, you know, we may never return to the levels of economic growth we've seen in the past. We're not going to see the labor force uh, increase significantly. Right now, it's only immigration that's basically keeping our population uh, even stable. Uh, so I think uh, I think we're not going to see. Of increases. You, Michael, you talked about that already. Women are already in the labor force. Minorities have moved into the labor force. We're not going to see that again. We're not seeing a big gain from education that we should, we should see. That's a problem with our school system. Uh, and we're moving increasingly to automation as, as the tool for, for, uh, for growth and uh, productivity. So I, I think we may not return to the, uh, the, you know, the 4 or 5% growth errors of the past. Uh, but to the degree that we can, I think it's going to require changes in tax and regulatory policy. In the,
4: front, in the middle. Have welfare programs hurt through violating subsidiarity, I think Mr. Bogelli was talking about? Have they violated the strength of the family and the private community by substituting for the role of the father or the extended family?
1: I think there was some belief that that was what was going on when welfare was eliminated. But I think if one of the things that I think we don't have the question for answer to is thinking about when you what happened with TANF is I think we really did take the floor out from under people. And I often think if you look at the issue that Michael um, raised about um people being, males being out of the labor market. If you look at the opportunity youth, the 16 to 24 year olds, those are kids who have grown up in this whole new world. Um, They were not part of the old welfare system. And so have we really missed an opportunity by designing that right? Sorry, (coughs) to help create better futures for our kids. So I think we really don't have the evidence. And I think if anything, we may have evidence in the other direction. (laughs)
3: <laughs> sure. I would. I would love to jump in on that. So I, I'm actually really glad you asked that question because I think often the the quote welfare state um, gets described as the quote hubby state, um, and that's uh, uh, something that's been postulated for for decades now, and was one of the theories and, and views underpinning quote welfare reform. Um, it, I don't know if folks in this room are familiar with um, a, a book called All the Single Ladies by Rebecca Traister. Um, it is worth a read as we think about um, the trajectory that the single woman has, uh, has seen over the course of the last few hundred years. She argues that for m- uh, many, many centuries, husbands um, had a and men had a wifey state. Um, and that, and uh, my colleague Heather Boucher at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth would go further and argue that um, American business uh, for a long time had a silent partner in the stay at home mom and wife. And a lot has changed. We're no longer living in the madman era. And that's why a lot of what we need to be having a serious conversation about is updating our public policies so that we recognize that we now have in many cases, two parents working, or we have a single head of household who is working, who is that mother. Um, so it isn't, I would argue that we need to think about both sides of that coin.
2: Um, I mean, I think it's, I think it's actually a, a very important question. Um, you know, there, there there there's no doubt in my mind that if we completely eliminated the welfare state, um, if we eliminated assistance to to the poor, that we would see an increase in private charity. I think that would happen, um, and we would see uh, you know more men uh, providing for their kids and taking a more active role in, in the lives of their kids. Um, you know, but but having said that, these programs didn't just kind of spring out of thin air. I mean, they were all started for a reason. And, you know, we, we started social security because the elderly were dying uh, of hunger and were dying in tenement houses and were dying of disease. Uh, it, w- it was not that long ago in the 1960s uh, that, that there was real starvation level poverty among children all throughout the United States. Um, and And that's why many of these programs were started. So, you know, I think, I think, sure, it's the case that um, that there is a sense in which men are being displaced within the family and churches and other charitable organizations are being displaced within society. And we should take that seriously. And when we're thinking about moving forward, we should design programs that encourage men to uh, you know provide for their kids and that, and that encourage uh, the uh, organizations of civil society to provide for their communities. Um, but... Uh, that should never obscure the fact that the family and the church, just as a matter of fact, were not enough to to create the kind of society that we want.
0: Well, let, just, let me just ask a follow up question on this, and then okay. on this sort of follow up, because I we hear I hear this a lot: you know, the problem of <clears throat> non meritable births uh, being a, a huge problem. My my question is: who are these women supposed to marry? Because my understanding is a lot of the problem is that the men available in these communities are not particularly attractive mates. Uh, they have, they're unemployed. They have criminal records. They have criminal histories. There's a lot of issues like that. Is that. I, you know, I remember the Bush administration was going to do a whole bunch of things where they're going to put up billboards and say, marriage is good or, or something was to kind of encourage marriage. But I mean, it's not that women don't want to get married. It's often that they lack suitable partners in that. William Julius Wilson's done a lot of work on this, of course, and, and others. I just want to put that in kind of in the context of this discussion as well. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt.
1: No, what I was going to say is I think that um, a point from the previous question is that I think that it's really important to, to keep in mind the evidence that Rebecca showed, that we have increasing evidence that providing... Um, The EITC providing SNAP benefits not only has an immediate benefit of making sure that there's extra income and there's food on the table, but it has long-term benefits that really extends into adulthood of people having better educational outcomes and better employment outcomes. So I think in 20 years, we're going to have a whole new set of evidence about the importance of income and the importance of what happens in child's early years. And that will really sort of shape our discussions and benefits about what we should be doing to make sure that those basic needs are met. And I think that the, I believe that the positive will outweigh any negatives that you may think would happen.
3: I wanted to speak to your sure. question. Um, I, I think that another improvement that I would love to see to the broader conversation is to get away from the binary um, view of single versus married as though those are permanent statuses or as though people are giving birth to single moms. Um, and that, that, is their, that is their existence throughout their lives. Um, it, when you actually look at the numbers, there are more married parents living in poverty than there are never married parents living in poverty, and yet we don't hear a conversation about marital poverty. Um, I I think that moving past the the single versus married and the the billboard version of that conversation is really important so that we can also be thinking about how to keep families who are together, together, and keep them strong. When you look at some of the major drivers of family dissolution, you find that um, uh, rising inequality, um, declining union membership, and poverty... Actual material deprivation, disability, these are huge drivers of family disillusion. What we should be doing, whether married or cohabiting, is helping families stay together and stay strong and have the resources that they need to to (coughs) parent their children in a productive way.
0: Yeah, Phil.
4: Nobody's mentioned birth control. Uh, there have been some very promising experiments in Colorado uh, suggesting that much easier access to uh, long-acting reversible methods of, uh, of contraception uh, has a salutary effect on a demand for welfare services and would certainly apply to uh, married women as well as single women. Uh, what do you all think about that as a matter of public policy?
1: I think it's an area that we need to do much more work on. Um, I think that it is a very tricky issue. I think that you have to, um, I think it's an issue of making sure that it is a choice for someone and not feeling that it is coercion. So I think that there are, it's an area where I think that we are at the very early stages of figuring out what good it can do and what bad it can do. And we need to really think strategically and um Um, But I think that it's not that it is, I just think we don't know about what's the right way to move forward and to do more with long-acting contraceptives um, and how you actually do that in a way that doesn't harm people.
2: I mean, I I, I agree with that. You know, I think on some level it shouldn't be surprising that if you, uh, you know, really encourage long-acting contraception that you'll see a decline in out-of-wedlock births. long-acting reversible contraception. Uh, you know, renders people temporarily sterile um, until the contraceptive device is removed, and they can and they can have children again. So it's it's, it's not surprising that if you temporarily sterilize people, they're gonna they're gonna have dramatically fewer children. Um, you know, the the concern that I have is is exactly the one that that Donna brought up, which is you know to what extent is this vol- voluntary. Um, you know what? What kind of agency should we realistically expect these targeted communities to exercise when thinking about this? You know, do we really want, you know, low-income, young, minority women having to make a doctor's appointment for you know a, a procedure in order to render them uh, uh, fertile again? You know, does that, you know, is there are there some issues with with you know some normative issues there? Um, you know, and at the same time. Uh, there is not uh, a shortage of uh, you know kind of more regular contraception out there. I mean, it's very easy to get condoms. It's very easy to you know get the birth control pill. You know, much easier to get condoms than even the birth control pill. But you know, condoms work pretty well. Um, and, and so it's you know I, it's not it's 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 not as if um, it's I don't even think we have a clear understanding of what an unplanned pregnancy means. Uh, you know, in a world where it's very easy to access condoms and where knowing how to use a condom is is, is, is pretty widely known. I'm going to
0: call it... Okay, Bill. Um,
4: <clears throat> but I, I think this, this good question ties to what Michael said about uh, the controversy over requirements uh, as to how uh, poor people could spend government benefits, alcohol or not alcohol, seafood or not, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and that... Uh, Beneath that, then, is the uh, unresolved question of whether, to what extent, how exactly welfare is or isn't or sort of is a right. If it's a right, and that term is understood in the direct literal sense, then it means that government is wrong to be interfering with the exercise of that right. If I have a right to these benefits, then... Government shouldn't be curtailing or conditioning that. Right after I moved to California about a decade ago, there were stories that... uh, people were taking, uh, they provide uh, some public benefits on something like a debit card. Well, it turned out that uh, among the readers of these debit cards, they were, they were located in casinos and strip clubs. Um, some people apparently took this, you know, right to public assistance in a, in a more literal way than the legislature quite intended. Um, Over the years, the ambiguity about this question, I think, has been one of the defining features of, of American politics. A phrase often used is that welfare benefits, public assistance of various sorts should be given as a matter of right, which is a brilliant sort of fudge because it says to people who disagree with the idea of a right, well, it's not really a right. We're going to sort of go through the motions of pretending. And it says to people who think it is a right, For all practical purposes, we agree. Um, So I I, I don't think until we we really grapple with that question that things like uh, restrictions on spending, things like quasi-voluntary long-term infertility um, can be addressed or resolved.
3: But there's a broader conversation than just larks, right? And I think the concerns that have been raised are, are valid and important. Um, but we also, we need to be thinking about this, how does reproductive access and reproductive rights fit into a broader conversation about um, uh, about an, an anti-poverty and a, and a boosting opportunity agenda? And until um, uh, we're in a place where truly all women can choose if and when to become mothers, they aren't going to have uh, control over their economic futures and, and much else so I'm, I think it's critical that you brought that up it's also why we should be suspect when people who um, uh, uh, blame single mothers on the one hand for all of society's ills it seems on the other hand also want to ensure abstinence only education in schools and defund planned parenthood um, I, it, it to me strikes me as talking out of both sides of your mouth
0: all right I know that's going to provoke a lot of discussion at lunch
3: perhaps on the panel
0: <laughs> uh, I suspect. Uh, I always say, I don't want to stand between anybody and food. Uh, so uh, if you'd like to go upstairs, we have lunch being served in the Jaeger Conference Center upstairs. I want to thank you all very much for coming out.